0: Hey guys I'm your host Mary and you're listening to prologues when my brain starts spiraling at a million miles per minute I find it helpful to zoom out and remind myself that I am still at the beginning of my story prologues is a place to get really comfortable with not having everything figured out but still trusting in the beauty to come and whether we're talking about mental health relationships wellness or just the absolute chaos of being in your 20s I hope these next moments are your reminder to take life as it comes onto the episode Hello, hello. Welcome back to Prologues. Welcome to the second episode. I am filming this the day after the podcast launched. I have been really feeling supported and encouraged by the response so far, and I wanted to thank you guys. It's been about like 30 hours since the first episode went live. But I'm really excited, and it's been so encouraging and nice to see your responses. So thank you so much, and thank you for tuning in to the second episode. I'm filming this in my closet again, sitting on the floor, my mess of a closet. I'm actually going to LA tomorrow. I'm getting on a flight in like 12 hours. But I think by the time you're hearing this, I won't be in LA. I'll be in Dallas again for two days, and I know I've been such a busy little bee this spring, I have really been surprised at how much I've been traveling, but with Matthew being in Dallas for the Jackals and then a few work things that have come up, I just, I'm all over the place. I haven't been home for more than I think six days, six or seven days at a time since my wedding in March, which is crazy. It's the first week of May, which means it's basically the middle of summer. It's basically my birthday already. After my birthday, it's basically Labor Day. And then it's pretty much fall. And the next thing you know, it's Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And it's literally almost 2024 at this point. That's what it feels like to me. Other things new in my world. I got a little tattoo over the weekend, just a tiny one. It's a outline of the Leo symbol that little squiggly zodiac sign above my right elbow. I feel like it's a very Leo thing to get a Leo tattoo because when I posted my Leo tattoo, I mean, and it's tiny, it's like the size of a quarter maybe, but I had so many other Leos slide into my DMs and be like, I have that exact same tattoo. So I feel like it's a Leo rite of passage to get a Leo tattoo. This is my second tattoo now. My other one is a little S that looks like a brand because it's taken from a brand. My older brother gave it to me in my parents' basement the day after Christmas. It's funny because they're so tiny, but I feel so tatted now. You know that TikTok sound that's like, oh, you don't like girls with tattoos? Well, take me off the roster. That's how I feel right now. Also, when people say that tattoos are addictive, they're really not lying they're really not lying as soon as i left the tattoo parlor i went with my friends on saturday i went to this bottomless brunch i didn't drink because i was still recovering from food poisoning but i went to this bottomless brunch with some of my friends to celebrate a birthday and then after that two of my friends came over to help me hang curtains in my house and there was just this moment where we were like it's a beautiful saturday we're young the sun is shining the vibes are incredible should we go get little tattoos and then we did And as soon as I left the tattoo parlor with my friends, I was like, wow, that was so easy. Should I do more? Should I do that again? So now I have to remind myself that I actually don't have any other tattoo ideas that are pressing at the moment, and that means I probably should not get one. I love how I'm making such a big deal out of this. And if you have seen this tattoo, it is the tiniest. Like, it is so so not a big deal, but I just like it. So today I want to talk about my diagnosis story and give a timeline and a history into my experiences with mental health. The reason why I want to do that is first and foremost, I think this is important to share because it provides a lot of relevant information about the life experiences that have significantly shaped my entire place in the world. And I think it will also give context to and like a foundation for this entire show, because this is going to be a long story about me, basically. But to not talk about my mental health and my diagnoses just straight up right at the beginning, I think would be the wrong way to go about this podcast. I think it's important for me to make this episode really early on. I think it will help build a foundation for everything that I want to talk about to come. And also, living with an undiagnosed mental illness is scary and going to therapy can be really nerve-wracking and the process of getting diagnosed can be very lonely and isolating. And when I was younger and I was going through some of the things that I'm about to tell you, I wish that I had heard other people talk about this more. When I was growing up, and not even growing up, when I was like, you know, 20, 21, I didn't know of anyone who was openly talking about being bipolar on the internet. I certainly didn't know of any mid 20s like influencers who were talking about it. When I was diagnosed, I was 21. I'll get into that, but I was looking up like every piece of information and every resource that I could online to help me make sense of my diagnosis. You can find a lot of clinical, medical, cold, heavily researched articles and information out there, but you don't find as many real life experiences. And it's harder to find people that are just telling their stories. And I think that if I had heard someone just tell their story, it would have been a comfort to me. So that's why I'm recording this podcast. Before we really get going and I really get into this, I do want to just say off the top, I'm going to be talking about some dark times. I'm going to be talking about some difficult experiences. This entire episode is mental health focused and mental illness focused, and some of these things might be triggering for you to hear if you struggled with it. So proceed with caution and take care of yourself. We're going to be talking about self-harm. We're going to be talking about difficult topics. So just keep that in mind. Take care of yourself, and let's do this. I'm going to give you a spoiler right now I have bipolar disorder and obsessive-compulsive disorder. So you already know how this story is going to end. It started when I was around 12. Those are my first memories of my mental health starting to decline. I was about 12 years old. At first, I think it was just depression. I mean, who knows what it was at first? I was 12. I struggled a lot with disordered eating. I, when I was 12, I very quickly became quite tall. I was at least six inches taller than every other Person I knew my age, I felt very awkward. I felt like I was taking up too much space in a lot of ways. I felt self conscious about the space I was taking up. And I developed a lot of disordered eating habits that I have struggled on and off with since then, actually, almost 13 years now. And I started having a lot of really low moods that worsened when I was about 15 or 16. And I think that was exacerbated by different environmental factors. Like, I grew up in a very high-control, toxic, religious environment. That wreaked havoc on my mental state quite a bit. I also often felt like an outcast socially growing up. I was also homeschooled. I was homeschooled up until I uh, went to college, so didn't have a ton of friends. I didn't really have the opportunity to make a lot of friends and the people I did know. I never quite felt like I belonged around anybody because my upbringing was different. It was unconventional. And being a teenager is just hard. I would not go back to being a teenager for literally anything in the world. I would not do it. And I think a lot of teens struggle with their mental health just because being a teenager is really hard. Those environmental factors definitely were at play for me. And when I was about 16, I became severely depressed, severely depressed. I have large gaps in my memory of years like 15 through 18 that I think are due to how depressed I was. Depression can wreak havoc on your memories. It can cause you to have memory loss and forget things. And i I forget a lot of, I have a lot of gaps in that time. My parents put me in therapy when I was 16. I think they had started to notice how different I had become. They sat me down one day and told me they were concerned, and they put me in therapy. The therapist was this really old guy, and I don't know much about his, I don't know, licensing or qualifications to be a therapist. I didn't really care at the time. The only thing I knew at the time was that I was a 16-year-old girl, and he was an old man, and I felt like he really didn't understand the psyche of a 16-year-old girl. At the time, I didn't have all of, like, the mental tools in my figurative toolkit that I have now. I didn't have the self-awareness or the the resources to understand that I was dealing with something bigger than just, like, teenage girl problems. So I would go to therapy and I would sit down and I would talk about things that were going on in my life. And I always got the impression that this guy just, like, didn't know why he was talking to me. Like, didn't really know why I was there. Didn't really understand how to talk to a young girl. That therapist thought that I had anger issues and seasonal affective disorder. He brought up the possibility of me having bipolar disorder, but I already felt really misunderstood by him. I I felt like we really didn't gel. We didn't, we didn't vibe. So I just completely dismissed that outright. And then he was like, well, you just have anger problems and seasonal affective disorder. I just kind of dismissed it. And I I wanted to not go anymore. I didn't want to go. I didn't want there to be an issue in me. I felt embarrassed. I didn't know anybody else in therapy. I felt ashamed. And so I just stopped going completely. Did that stop the depression? Absolutely not. (laughs) I don't remember the years 16 to 18, so it clearly didn't. But I just stopped going. When I was 18, I left for college That was a huge change in my life. I finally, you know, I left that high-control religious environment. I got out of my small hometown, which I had always wanted to do. College was my first real social experience around a lot of people my own age. I mean, I had known people and met people through my church, but college is a much different environment, and I was excited for that. I really wanted to get out and try something new, but it's a lot of change, and my mental health really turned into... A roller coaster. I've always been someone who has placed my worth in my accomplishments. I wanted to be a really high achiever. I've always been high functioning. I quickly started craving academic validation. I struggled to find my social footing. Being a homeschooler raised in high control religion did not exactly prepare me to be the cool kid in college and I really was not. But I also felt very free for one of the first times because I felt like I had the opportunity to experiment with everything with life but again it's a lot of change I was in a relationship for my entire college experience which is a story for another time college is again like being a teenager I think being in college is hard for most people no matter the state of your mental health trying to figure out the person you want to become trying to figure out the direction your life is going to take, being pressured to make decisions about your major, your future career, uh, you have to kind of get your shit together and figure out your internships and your summer jobs, and things get really real all of a sudden. I struggled a lot. My mental health—it just—it turned into an absolute roller coaster. I sought counseling through my university's health services, which pretty much did nothing. My counselor literally told me that she was not trained to handle my issues and I should seek traditional therapy like in my college town. Before I just stopped going, that counselor also brought up bipolar disorder and she made it clear that she couldn't diagnose, but she thought my experiences sounded like bipolar disorder. And I thought that it was a weird coincidence that two different mental health professionals had brought that up to me, especially at the time, even now, but especially at the time, bipolar was such a scary sounding word and you have no idea how much I I just simply did not want to be bipolar. So I completely put it out of my head. I stopped going. My mental health got worse. I had some dark times in college. I had two suicide attempts. Once in the December of 2018, which would have been my senior year fall semester, and once in April of 2019, which was my final semester in college. I'm not going to get super into that, but it happened. That's part of my history. That's part of my past. If you have gone through that, you know how much it kind of changes you as a person. You, you have to heal from it. You have to live with the knowledge that you got to that place and you got to that point. It's a scary road getting to that point, and it's a challenging road moving on from it. When I think about being in college, I have so many different conflicting memories in my head. I love learning. I love education. I mean, I wish I could just stay in school forever, partly because I feel like staying in school forever would make me feel like I could escape the real world, but also because, well, okay. And also because I do crave academic validation and I always have, but I love the joy of learning. So I love that part of it. Also, I did eventually in college, I made some of my absolute best friends in the world, my best friend. I'm still friends with Like 99% of the people that I was friends with in college, I made so many incredible friends sort of one by one. I found people who didn't have the same childhood as me, but, you know, loved me and were empathetic and open and who were fascinating and who expanded my mind and who introduced me to so many different things I'd never had access to before. And so that's amazing. I love those two parts of my college memories. But I also have so many memories of just being numb inside. I have so many memories of days where I would be so low but still high-functioning. I would have to write to-do lists with every single minute task that had to be completed, broken down into the smallest steps possible. Living life, I remember one time my mom was advising me. I called her once when I was in school and she was like if if it's too much to go one day at a time then you just put one foot in front of the other. For much of my college experience that's what I was doing. It was one foot in front of the other. I would write my to-do list out when I got up when I woke up in the morning so that I could try to motivate myself to get up. And it would be things like get out of bed, walk to the bathroom, brush my teeth, wash my face, walk back to the bedroom, make the bed, pull out my school books, like tiny tasks. Because if I didn't write it down like that, if I wasn't able to cross each thing off as I went, I would crumble and I wouldn't be able to do anything. I graduated in May of 2019, which, as you may recall, was about a month after my second suicide attempt. I graduated. My relationship ended. I had applied for and gotten a position in military contracting, but I had to get a security clearance so I could start the job And I was I had applied for that. I'd done my interviews. I'd, you know, done my background checks, my fingerprinting. And then I was waiting around indefinitely for months, waiting for the clearance to go through so that I could actually start the job. I was 20 years old when I graduated fully financially independent. I spent my time waiting for that security clearance, working a minimum wage retail job. I lived in the basement of a house in town, which I loved, actually. As I'm saying all of these things, I'm realizing that it almost sounds like I'm complaining. I'm actually not. <laughs> I, I loved all of those things. I had fun at that job. I loved that house. I was so proud. I was like so happy to be graduated. I was doing pretty good. I felt like I had been given a second chance almost. I had gone through everything that happened in my senior year and I kind of felt like things were looking up, I was getting a second chance. Doing pretty good. That lasted for a little while. And then looking back, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I was definitely manic in the summer of 2019, wildly manic. It's tough when you're manic because, and if you have bipolar disorder, you probably know what I'm about to say, but sometimes when you're manic, it just feels like you're doing good. And it's really hard to recognize that this is also just part of the disorder because sometimes when you're manic, It feels like you're cured and you're not. It's a false sense of confidence and enthusiasm and zest for life. And it's hard, especially if you've just come out of a deep depressive episode like I had. Being manic feels like you're finally getting it all together, but you're not. As all bipolar people know, (laughs) after a manic episode often comes a bad crash. I fucking crashed. I crashed harder than I had ever crashed in my life. I quit my job. I did not have another one lined up. I I didn't have the security clearance. I just quit. I had some meager savings, drained my bank accounts. I had no will to live, but I didn't even have enough will to try to hurt myself again. The only thing I wanted, I didn't want to die. I just wanted to not live. And there's a difference. I went to CVS and I got the strongest sleeping pills I could find, like over the counter. I think they're dipenhydramine. Is that how you pronounce that? Dipenhydramine. It's like over the counter sleeping meds. I got the strongest ones I could find. And I would use them to stay in these comatose sleep states for days on end. I would sleep for 10, 11 hours. I would wake up in a fog. I I would never really feel fully awake, but I would wake up, I drink water, use the bathroom, take another sleeping pill, and just repeat. Sometimes I would do that for days on end. It sounds like I'm saying this to you now, and I'm remembering it. I'm having these flashbacks. I'm remembering what that felt like, but... I, st- I can't really believe that it happened, even though I know it happened. I was there. I have photo memories. I can remember everything about it from the way that like the small amount of light coming in through my tiny basement window and what it would look like as I would wake up from this foggy stupor. I remember the buzzy, staticky feeling in my head because I was never really awake. And then when I did really wake up, I would just start drinking and going out partying, eating like $1 McDonald's cheeseburgers because I didn't have any money. And saying this to you now, I, yeah, it's weird saying this out loud. I'm not proud of myself for the ways that I chose to cope, but I'm no longer mad at myself for it either because I was hurting and I had no idea what was going on with me. And I was just trying to get from day to day. I, I think deep inside, I was trying to kill enough time to to get better. I didn't have the will or maybe the strength to be conscious and to be awake and to feel all of the pain that I was feeling because I think I knew that I needed to just wait it out somehow. I don't know. Anyway, my friends and my parents were understandably concerned (laughs) to put it lightly. Yeah, people were concerned about me. My friends definitely knew something was wrong Sometimes some of my closest friends who are still my closest friends to this day, they'd take me in and I would go sleep at their house. We wouldn't even really talk. I would just go climb into bed and they would just be there and I would sleep in one of of my friends' rooms. I think if it weren't for that, for those friendships and, and for my friends allowing me to do that, I wonder if things would have been worse, if they would have been different. Those are really strong memories of that time too. You know, smelling... My friend's candle burning while I was laying in her bed and her stroking my hair. I'm a person who hates physical touch, you guys. (laughs) I can handle being touched by like one person at a time. And that person in my life right now is Matthew. And probably for the rest of my life, that will be Matthew. But I'm not like a cuddly person. I'm not like a hugger. I don't know. I just have never been that way. But for once in my life, like my friend would stroke my head as I fell back asleep. And there's a lot of sad and scary parts of that time. But I'll never forget my friend, Sylvan, just stroking my head as I fell asleep. My parents really urged me to go back to therapy, really urged me. I definitely wouldn't have gone if it weren't for their insistence that I go. So I did, found a therapist nearby. That woman saved my life, I think, actually. We had several sessions, we had an intake, intakes were painful ugh i still hate an intake basically if you're not familiar with this process an intake is kind of it's either your first session or it's a prelude to your first session where you basically answer this really long questionnaire that details your family's medical history their mental health history your history you have to like describe if you've ever self-harmed if you've ever have if you've ever had a suicide attempt if you have dangerous self-directed thoughts if you basically have to go through and narrate all of the most traumatic events in your life and bear your deepest darkest parts of your soul just straight off the bat with someone you've never met before so that they know how to place you they know like which counselor or therapist to place you with they know how to treat you how to approach treatment intakes are not fun (laughs) so we had an intake we had several sessions god i was a mess i was a mess then I would roll into that therapist's office in a, you know sweatpants or leggings and a hoodie that I've been wearing for three days, no makeup, the darkest circles under my eyes, just looking absolutely dead inside. <laughs> Sometimes I would get in there and I wouldn't even talk during the sessions. I would just like sit numbly and cry a little bit or not even. Eventually, I warmed up to this therapist and we started talking. And guess what? Guess what? <laughs> After we had had enough time for the therapist to really get to know me, she sat me down one day and she was like, I think you may have bipolar disorder. Three for three at this point. Three for three. Did I accept it right away? Absolutely not. Because it was still scary. I didn't want that. I didn't want to be bipolar. It's a scary word if you don't know anything about it. But she said, I think you may have bipolar disorder. And I was so low. I knew that if something didn't change in my life, that my life was just not going to be worth it. Not even in like a, God, it sounds dramatic, but like, I just knew that there was no way that I could live the way that I had been living for the past two or three months. No way at all. So I went with it. She pulled in a doctor and a psychiatrist to work with her on me. Getting diagnosed with bipolar disorder, at least in my experience, involved a lot of tests. I had a lot of physical and cognitive tests. They wanted to rule out the possibility of like a hormone imbalance or thyroid issues, developmental issues, something physical, anything that could have been like biological or physiological, they want to rule those out. And then I did a lot of sort of like mental assessments. A lot of them. I would like drag myself to these doctor's appointments. I was exhausted. I dragged myself to the appointments. I pretended that I cared enough about what happened to my life in order to get through them. I would sit... <laughs> Another really strong memory that jumps out is me sitting in the corner of this doctor's office with harsh fluorescent lighting, scribbling on this mental health assessment. And it was like, how many days out of the past month have you like not wanted to be alive anymore? I remember really stopping and having to think about that because my answer was truthfully all of them. And I put that on the questionnaire and then I had to stay longer and answer more questions because they were concerned about me. But (laughs) anyway, after about a month of this, on November 1st, 2019. I know that date. It's going to be stuck in my head forever. I also know that date because I got diagnosed that day. Before I went into the office, the doctor's office, and I I received that formal diagnosis, the leaves looked really pretty. It was fall. I love fall. I love fall and winter. I love cold weather. The leaves just looked so good. And I remember that on that day, I put on jeans and Sneakers. And that was kind of a big deal because I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't going out. I wasn't, you know, doing anything except going to the doctor's office. And I had been doing that in like sweatpants and leggings. But that day, I put on real pants. I put on jeans. It's almost—I don't know. It's almost like I knew something was about to come. I don't know. Maybe you understand what I mean when you're severely depressed and you put on jeans for the first time. It's like, wow, something's about to change in my life. Anyway, November first, 2019, I learned that I had rapid cycling type two bipolar disorder, and my life permanently changed for the better. I went on my first medication, which is a mood stabilizer that I most definitely couldn't afford. My very kind doctor gave me a three-month supply of samples just to see if it would make a difference. And it always takes a while for medication to kick in, so I didn't really notice anything at first. And then one day, holy shit, one day I woke up and I thought about my future for the first time in what felt like forever. It sounds simple, but if you've been in that dark place, you get it. For the first time in months. I thought about being an older me. I thought about what life might look like in my future. I wanted it. I wanted to keep getting older. I wanted to chase something different. It was like a flip switched in my head. One day that medication kicked in and I woke up and I was like, oh my God, it's time to start moving forward. I realized that I had no job. My money was pretty much gone. My personal life had taken a hit because I had just gone through this killer depressive episode. But in a rare, beautiful gift from the universe, I got the word that my security clearance had been granted, and I was able to start my first like big girl job with a salary with a salary with health insurance. I had a reason to get up every morning. I was excited. I was working in my field. I was a writer-editor. I was doing things that I had learned about in school. I could afford to pay all these doctor's bills now. I was still going to therapy weekly. It, it honestly, it felt like things just changed, not overnight because it had taken so long to get there, but it's like things slipped into place. The light at the end of the tunnel came in that way. I... Had been fighting against the label of bipolar disorder for so long. Since I was 16, I was fighting against it. I accepted it. I came to terms with it. I pursued treatment. And it felt like the universe just threw me a bone. So then COVID started. And I'm going to gloss over 2020 to 2021. Because I feel like most of us were in a similar place then. I had tough times, but they were largely due to environmental factors like being stuck in a global pandemic. By 2022, I felt very comfortable with my diagnosis. It made sense to me. I had researched bipolar disorder. I had reconciled the clinical information online with my own experiences. At that point, I was making content. I had become... I was talking about it a lot online. I'd become pretty decent at recognizing when I was entering a manic or depressive episode. I became better at coping. I was developing better healthy habits. Like, I was feeling more comfortable. But I went through this rough patch in 2022 where things got really stressful, more stress than I'd ever experienced. It was just one of those like when it rains at poor situations. I had a stressful event in my personal life. My work stressed me out. I was trying to map out what the next five years would look like, the direction my career would take, my relationship with myself, trying to figure out the kind of person I wanted to be, you know, just everything. And I think that stress traps you in a cycle sometimes and you almost become addicted to it and safety and peace feels unfamiliar and feels either boring or feels threatening because you get so used to living in like that fight or flight state. So my stress levels were just really, really high for a while. My anxiety was really bad. And my stress started manifesting, my anxiety started manifesting in these really unusual ways that I'd never experienced before. I became obsessed with symmetry on my body. So like if I had more jewelry on one hand than on the other, or I sprayed perfume twice on the right side of my neck, but three times on the left side of my neck, things like that. I became really obsessed with it. Things needed to be symmetrical. My shoes needed to be tied exactly the same tightness. I needed to have the same number of swipes of deodorant underneath each arm. I became pretty obsessed with cleanliness in very certain spaces. I'd always been a big person that's like there's outside clothes and there's inside clothes and you don't wear your outside clothes on the bed. I've always been that way, but I became really obsessive about it and about the cleanliness of my clothes in general. I I would wear a shirt for like 3 hours and then change, you know, to go do something else. And then I would feel like that shirt was dirty. Even if I just wore it inside in air conditioning, didn't sweat, didn't even move in it, I'd be like, that shirt's dirty. I can't wear it again until it's clean. I became really obsessed with my laundry. I was searching for patterns, searching for patterns. So for example, if I got bad news on a Tuesday and I was wearing a blue shirt, the next time I was wearing a blue shirt on a Tuesday, I would feel extremely panicked. I would feel like something horrible was about to happen even if it had been months since the first time I wore the blue shirt on the Tuesday. Anything like that, I would just be very unsettled. And I had never experienced those things before. It was really unusual. Matt noticed it before I did, actually. And he even brought it up to me once. He was like, hey, and he was super nice about it. But he was like, it seems like you've become kind of concerned and a little particular about certain things that never bothered you before. What's going on with that? And I'm happy that he said that because I hadn't really, I had noticed, but I hadn't really confronted the fact that this was all new, but this was all a change in me. And when I did, I brought it up to my psychiatrist and she asked if I had any family members with OCD, which I do. That diagnosis process was actually comparatively pretty simple. I basically just tracked my symptoms for a couple of months and we checked in regularly. And after several months, she assessed everything I had told her, And she was like, yeah, you have obsessive-compulsive disorder. She was like, it could be that you have really high anxiety levels that are manifesting in compulsive ways, but for the sake of treatment, you're, you know, we're going to diagnose you with obsessive-compulsive disorder. So I started experimenting with meds again under her guidance, had a bunch of disastrous failures. I was scared again. I felt my brain changing. I was acutely aware of the fact that things that didn't bother me six months ago felt like life or death now. And I was angry at myself. I felt like a failure. I felt like a never ending list of things was wrong with me. Med trials exhausted me. I felt like a disappointment to myself. I felt like a disappointment to Matt, not because he made me feel that way. He's always been the most supportive person in the world of my mental health, but because I was self-aware of the ways that I had changed and the ways that I don't know this, this new way that my brain was working was affecting our life together. Like just for example, Matt, if you're listening to this, you know what I'm about to say. The hand sanitizer thing. I cannot explain this to you at all. It's something that I'm still struggling with to this day. A year later, when Matt and I would get into bed every night, I would need to spray our both of our hands with hand sanitizer five times, even if I had just washed my hands and he had just washed his hands, or even if we had both just got gotten out of the shower, like clean, crispy, clean. I would just feel like I would feel nuts spraying this hand sanitizer over and over again but I also felt like if I didn't do it there was no way in hell I was falling asleep like I like I had to do the hand sanitizer thing or else I simply would not be resting that night and it's not like that's the end of the world you know like oh I'm spraying our hands with hand sanitizer it's not like that's the most annoying thing ever but it was but I I, it was different it was like this peculiar little ritual that I just had to do or else I couldn't rest. And that's kind of why I started feeling disappointed in myself, because I was aware of the fact that I was just making up all of these new rituals and new habits, and they felt so important to me. As with most things, acceptance came with time. I started researching the relationship between bipolar disorder and OCD. There actually is a link. They co-occur too often to be a coincidence, and it does make it harder to treat. There are some overlap in the symptoms, but researchers now think that the comorbidity occurs because of the high levels of anxiety that are present in both disorders. I'll put some links in the show notes if you want to research this yourself. You always, always should research everything yourself, but a lot of research has found that people with bipolar disorder are more likely to develop OCD than any other disorder. Check out the links I'm going to put in the show notes so you can read all this yourself, but basically there is a link between bipolar and OCD. So I started learning about that. I learned everything I could about OCD. But I also just started telling myself that labeling a mental illness and identifying with another diagnosis just helps me give a name to the chaotic feelings inside of me and naming it makes it easier to treat. You might even remember this if you followed me on TikTok last year, but you may remember me talking about the fact that I just felt bad I felt like there was this never-ending list of things that were wrong with me I was like holy shit there's just another name there's another condition there's this other diagnosis there's just more names for things that are apparently wrong with my head I hated it I felt so bad I felt so embarrassed so judgmental towards myself I was like not another thing that's how I felt at first But then I I slowly just started to realize, like, what's the point of being upset with myself for the way that my brain works? Is that going to make my brain stop? No, it's just going to make it harder for me to give myself the space and the treatment I need. So where am I now? I'm in therapy. I'm working with a trauma-informed therapist. We spend most of our sessions on inner child work, unpacking childhood trauma, talk a lot about my changing worldview growing up what's going on in my day-to-day, I really like it. I like this therapist a lot. I believe in total, brutal honesty with your therapist, even if it makes you look bad. It's so freeing, honestly. I tell my therapist whatever's on my mind, even if it makes me look lazy, jealous, angry, mopey, self-pitying, judgmental, depressed, anything. I tell her everything, even if I feel like I sound crazy. Because through that honesty... She helps me learn how to be better. She helps me learn how to form new neural pathways, how to work on myself, how to become a better person. So I'm always a believer in like, really tell your therapist the truth. Tell your therapist your dark thoughts, your scary thoughts, your negative thoughts, your toxic thoughts, because your thoughts aren't who you are. And by being honest, you can learn how to be better. You can learn how to reprogram the way that you think be honest with your therapist. If that's like your one takeaway from this episode, be so brutally honest with your therapist. I still see that same psychiatrist. We are working on the perfect medication combo. I actually think we're getting pretty close. I keep track in a loose sense of my episodes and my symptoms so that we kind of stay aware of frequency, intensity, and I do that usually through journaling and then I look back at my entries before my sessions so I can give accurate info. I can be like, oh, my journal entries, you know, in February were really low. Like, I think maybe I was experiencing a depressive episode. Or my journal entries last October were, I think they were really manic, like looking back. And then we can just kind of get a sense of like, how's the medication working? How's my therapy? How, how's everything playing out? I have accepted the fact that this is who I am. These are the cards I was dealt. And I'm likely going to be experiencing this for the rest of my life. I don't know if, like, I don't know if people are, like, cured from bipolar or OCD. I mean, you go through good periods, even really, really long good periods. If you've seen research to the contrary, please send it to me. At this moment, I haven't really seen much to indicate that I could ever conceivably not be bipolar or not have OCD. So I might as well, I might as well make this a priority. I might as well track these episodes. Stay in therapy diligently take my medications, stay honest with my therapist, and just kind of hunker down for a lifetime of mental health care. Because what else am I meant to do? It's, It's hard not to resent your diagnoses. It's hard not to resent even people around you sometimes who don't have the conditions you have, even though that sounds bad. But something that I have really learned over the last 13 years, you cannot resent yourself into being mentally healthy. You cannot irritate or disappoint or loathe yourself into not being depressed or not being manic or obsessive compulsive or whatever it may be and if you try you are going to make it worse. I believe that one of the best things you can do for your mental health outside of avenues like therapy, medication if that's right for you, outside of things like that, one of the best things you can do I think is to accept your reality. Accept your diagnosis without stigma, without preconceived notions of what people with that condition are like. Accept it without judgment of yourself and get familiar with it. I've been in dark places many times, places that scared me. I have more times than I could count or could tell you about. I have been overrun by thoughts that felt like they couldn't possibly be coming from my own head. I have felt like a stranger in my own body and in my own mind. I have been afraid of things that I have thought or wanted to do, and it's easy to ignore it or to repress it. For a long time, especially in college, I refused to think about it. I refused to acknowledge to myself my reality. I thought I could just ignore it and live life normally and things would be fine, But that wasn't true for me. I can't pretend to myself like everything is fine. I can't live my life the way that someone without my conditions lives theirs. It's a hard truth. It's uncomfortable. Through therapy and through my own self-work, I have sat in the uncomfortableness. I have sat in the shame and the anger, the resentment, the embarrassment. I have felt the triggers. I have kind of, I've looked my disorders in the eye and have said one way or another, like it or not, this this is my reality and I'm going to do every single thing in my power to just have the best fucking life. Not anyway, not in spite of, but just the best fucking life. What gives me hope now, what helps me now is reflecting and looking back and realizing how far I've come. Honestly, I sat down and I prepared this episode. I I wrote sort of an outline, kind of a timeline of events. I could sit down and make sure I didn't forget anything important. And Doing that and and talking to you guys now, it's wild. (laughs) I can't believe I did some of those things. I have put the work in on myself. I'm continuing to put the work in because I know I still have so much further to go, but I'm proud of the progress I've made. But I choose to believe that life through the ups and downs generally trends upwards. It has a general upward trajectory, even though there's bumps on the road. So many more people are are feeling that, then we realize. I wish deeply that my younger self had been able to hear a story like this because my younger self felt so isolated and so alone. I felt like I was the only person in the entire world going through what I was going through. And I wasn't. I really wasn't. But I had no idea. I really wish someone that I saw online had talked about it. And that's why I'm telling you now. Whether you listen to this episode because you simply want to support the podcast, thank you. Whether you have bipolar disorder or OCD and you felt drawn to hearing this story, I understand because I also really like to hear other people's stories. I love to hear diagnosis stories. I love to hear what other people experience. It just, I feel like it helps me. Whether you're someone like that, whether you have no prior knowledge or experience of any of these things. You just felt curious. I don't know. Basically what I'm saying is I, I don't know why you're here, but I hope that at least one of you feels a little more hopeful, a little less isolated, a little less alone. Okay, heavy topic. I feel a little somber now. I need to actually perk up because tonight I'm going to this advanced screening of the first episode of Queen Charlotte, which is a Bridgerton spinoff. It's at the African American History Museum, which is a Smithsonian here in D.C. Influencer things don't really happen in D.C. This is not really an area that's known for its influencer presence. Thank you for listening, not only to the podcast, but also to this story. If you feel like this episode would help someone you know share it with them. As always, if you have a topic that you would like me to make an episode about, you can either DM me on Instagram or you can email the podcast email, which is also in the show notes. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening to my story. I hope everyone has a fantastic rest of the week. I need to finish packing for mine. Next week will be a little bit more cheerful, probably, unless you don't want to hear it, (laughs) unless you want to hear more of the same. I don't know. Next week will be what you guys want it to be, but I will talk to you very, very soon. Love you guys. Bye.